One of the primary ways OT professionals can improve care at scale is to increase the diversity of our workforce, with the ultimate goal of mirroring the diversity of our client populations. This parity will ensure that we have the variety of perspectives needed to effectively serve our clients. So what do the actual numbers say about the current diversity of our workforce? Are we headed in the right direction? Well, according to today's data, it's a mixed bag. Today, we'll look at a report from JAMA that estimates racial and ethnic representation in 10 U.S. healthcare professions. And while the evolving graduate pipeline suggests our future workforce will be more diverse overall, there is significant variance among specific professions. And the authors specifically call out occupational therapy for having a smaller percentage of Black OTs in our educational pipeline than we have in our workforce. And this alarming revelation suggests that OTs may actually become less diverse in this metric as time goes on, meaning that we are headed in the wrong direction. There is so much to unpack from this data, and we are so excited to welcome back to the podcast a guest from one of our most popular episodes, Arame Anverizade, OTD, OTRL, FAOTA. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of diversity in OT, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT continuing education platform. And bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify where OT compares to other professions in terms of the diversity of our workforce. And secondly, you will be able to recognize what the metrics of our student pipeline indicate for the diversity of our future workforce. So let's begin by looking at this journal article, and then we will bring on Arame to discuss how this research could play out in your practice. The article that we are discussing today is called The Estimation and Comparison of Current and Future Racial and Ethnic Representation in the U.S. Healthcare Workforce. It comes to us from the journal JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. It was published in 2021. So the authors begin with, why is this research important? A substantial body of literature suggests that fostering a diverse and inclusive workforce is critical to improving care access and quality for underserved populations. For example, studies suggest that a diverse workforce may improve health care providers' cultural competence and better prepare them to respond to the needs of the entire population. Research also suggests that student body diversity is associated not only with better overall student preparation to care for minority populations, but also with more equitable access to care across the population as a whole. 
And research has also shown that a more diverse workforce with a broader set of experiences in leadership roles can help foster research and policy agendas that reflect a wider set of needs and priorities. So what is missing from the current body of research? In the healthcare space, most workforce diversity research has been focused on physicians, and few studies have assessed diversity of other healthcare professions or tracked them over time, which leads us to this paper. So what was the intent of this research? The author sought to estimate the racial and ethnic diversity of the current workforce and the graduate pipeline. They also set out to evaluate whether pipeline data suggests greater representation of Black, Hispanic, and Native American professionals in the future, specifically looking at allied health professionals. So what were their methods? This cross-sectional study used publicly available 2019 data from two databases, One, the American Community Survey, and this survey collects data from 1% of the population annually, then weights it to represent the nation overall. Secondly, they collected data from the Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System, and this data set includes racial and ethnicity demographics, also collected annually from nearly all post-secondary institutions. As part of their methods, they also developed a diversity index. So from these massive data sets, the authors created a relatively simple metric to measure diversity in each healthcare profession, a ratio of the percentage of different races and ethnicities in a particular health profession compared to the percentage in the total working age population. And they called this the diversity index. So for example, 12% of working age individuals in the U.S. are Black, So if 12% of practitioners in OT were Black, our diversity index would be 1. But if only 6% of OT professionals were Black, then our diversity index would be 0.5. So ideally, your diversity index ratio is around 1, or at least trending in that way. So let's look at the actual numbers that they collected in their results. This study comprised 148 million people who were working or searching for work, and 71 million people in the educational pipeline. This is obviously a huge sample, much bigger than anything we've looked at on the podcast before. Uh, There are so many numbers to explore in these results, but for the sake of our review on this podcast, I'm going to focus on the representation of Black OT practitioners and students, as the authors highlighted these findings as indicative of a problematic shift. Before I do that, though, I do want to note that OT's diversity index for Hispanic individuals is actually increasing, and the diversity index for Native American individuals is down but only by a very slight margin. So digging into the numbers, let's look at the workforce estimates of current OT practitioners. In the data they provided, they found that white individuals made up 80% of our workforce, black individuals around 6%, Hispanic individuals around 5%, and Native American individuals around 0.2%. So that's OT specifically, and here's how black representation in OT compares to other healthcare disciplines. And keep in mind that about 12% of the overall U.S. workforce is black. So only respiratory therapists, the number one profession that I'm going to mention, uh, really comes close to this percentage. So starting with the highest representation, we're going to work down the list through the 10 healthcare professions, beginning with number one, respiratory therapists, and around 11% of their workforce is Black. 
Number two, registered nurses, also around 11% of their workforce is black. Pharmacists is 7%. Advanced practice registered nurses is also around 7%. Coming in at number five out of 10 is occupational therapists with around 6%. Number six is physicians with around 5%. Speech and language pathologists, around 4.7% of their workforce is black. Eight, physician assistants, around 5%. Nine, dentists, around 4%. And last in 10th place is physical therapists, around 3%. So that's the overall percentage of Black individuals in the healthcare workforce. You can hear that everyone's below the 12% where we aspire to be, but there's a lot of variation between the 10s, especially when you look from respiratory therapists all the way down to physical therapists, and OT is kind of running in the middle of the pack. So turning to the graduate pipeline, first looking just at the OT numbers overall, the article shares that in our OT educational pipeline, white individuals comprise around 78%, Hispanic individuals around 7.7%, Black individuals around 4.2%. And that is definitely our key metric because in our workforce, it was around 6%. I'm going to take the time to go through the 10 healthcare professions and how they compare in this graduate pipeline, but I do want you to know that I have all this information written out for you if you are a club member so you can um, look at it in a written form. You can also just refer back to this original article and see the data there. I think they have multiple helpful graphs, Um, but for the sake of our podcast today, I'll just talk us through this graduate pipeline. And again, we're sharing the percentage of Black individuals in the educational pipeline and going down the list from the highest representation to the profession with the lowest representation. Number one is advanced practice registered nurses. Number two is respiratory therapists at 13%. Number three is registered nurses at 11%. Number four is pharmacists at around 9.5%. Number five is physicians around 5.8%. Number six is dentists, around 5%. Occupational therapy comes in at seven, at 4.2%. In our workforce, we were ranked number five, and now we've moved down to seven because we have this lower percentage. Um, But behind us is still speech and language pathologists at 3.9%. Nine is physical therapists at 3.2%. And last is physician assistants, 3.1% of their educational pipeline is comprised of Black individuals. Okay, so you can see that the percentage of Black graduates in our educational pipeline is less than the percentage in our current workforce. This means that our diversity index is trending downwards in this metrics. And out of the 10 professions included in this study, ours showed the largest shift in the wrong direction. Headed into the discussion of this paper, while the overall data does show greater diversity among new grad healthcare professionals compared to the current workforce, it's important to acknowledge that the healthcare graduate pipeline remains substantially less diverse than the general population. In five of the 10 professions, Black representation in the graduate pipeline trailed behind representation in the current workforce. For physician assistants and physical therapists, this may be due to an increasing degree requirements. Other factors that may contribute to lack of diversity in the healthcare workforce include low-quality secondary education, limited financial support, lack of mentorship and role models, and unreceptive educational environments. 
Data transparency with regard to race and ethnicity may help boost efforts to address these factors, ultimately leading to more workforce diversity. Additionally, annual reporting on racial and ethnic representation in different healthcare professions may foster accountability and motivate meaningful action to increase diversity. Key stakeholders in this work include educational institutions, national associations, and state policymakers. The outcomes of this study are a clear call for introspection and review among healthcare leaders across professions in order to understand the causes behind our current lack of diversity and to develop next steps for addressing these causes and improving the quality and diversity of the healthcare workforce. There is so much to unpack from this article. I love the call to action about this annual reporting of data like this. The One of the limitations of this paper is it is just a snapshot. Um, so we don't get that full sense of trends, which we really need to understand this data. And I just feel like we're talking to the perfect person today because of the multiple hats that she wears in the OT world. Arame Anverizade, O-T-D-O-T-R-L-F-A-O-T-A, is the Associate Professor of Clinical Occupational Therapy at the USC Mrs. T.H. Chan Division of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy. Arame is also a founding member of the Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity, or COTAD, a nonprofit organization striving to empower occupational therapy leaders to engage in practices that increase diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, anti-racism, and anti-oppression for a more transformative occupational therapy profession. Arame is also the youngest and first African-American slash Iranian woman to become vice president of the American Occupational Therapy Association. She is also the youngest woman of color inducted into the prestigious roster of fellows, which is that F-A-O-T-A behind her name. And again, I'm just so thankful to Arame for being here today. So without further ado, I will patch her into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Arame. It's so great to have you. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I am so thankful to have you back, especially to look at this paper. When I started the OT Potential Club, I like made this commitment to myself. I was like, I want to look at journal articles, even if they're not flattering of OT, like the the research that doesn't paint us in the best light sometimes. And this is an article where OT is called out specifically for not having the tr the trend or trajectory and diversity that we want to. Um, so I'm so thankful that you're here to talk about it today from all your different hats. Some people may know you, some people may not. I wanted to start just back with Arame at the beginning of her career and give us a picture into how you first became an OT. What persuaded you to join us? Love the story, the origin story, right? Yeah. But first, I want to say thank you for having me on, especially because what you said really resonated with me. If we as 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 a profession doesn't don't ask the critical questions or really think about it, then how are we moving forward? So this, you know, sometimes even if it's not in the good, best light, we need to ask the questions so that we can become better. So it's all good. I'm happy yeah. <laughs> intentionally for the club. Now, how I got into OT? Listen, Sarah, I was going to be this incredible. Uh, dope neurosurgeon, right? I was going to be like, I'm going to do neurosurgery. I love the brain. It's like, 
the lion of the jungle, you know. And so I was on the path of, you know, pre-med and had no clue. Like I had no, I would have missed it. I had no clue about what occupational therapy was. And I was in my organic chemistry class in my junior, my soft, into my sophomore year. And Kim Eggleston, um, she's part of my origin story. She was a recruiting at the time and she was a faculty member at, U- at USC. And because uh, I was also an undergrad at USC and she came and talked about this thing called OT. And I'm, I'm about to date myself, but I think it was like 2002, 2003. Like, you know, this whole concept of having an OTD and going into doctoral and having a doctoral degree was very new. And I said, OK, wait a minute. This sounds really cool. This idea that you don't just do the surgery and bounce, but you're part of their journey, right? You're part of their the story making and the storytelling and the narrative of the healing process. And that re- that really resonated me because it resonated with me because it seemed like it constantly kept you in the state of humility, right? And so I said, well, shoot, let me just check out a class. Sarah, that class turned to two classes. That <laughs> turned to four. And I looked up. I said, I'll be I'm slowly <laughs> turning into OT. And that was the time where you could get a bachelor's in OT, right? And so I was in denials and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll just get this bachelor's. But I'm still, go- still going to medical school, right? Imagine someone like me, the, the OT ambassador. And you know, I got my master's and, you know, the Persian in me, you know, I got the Persian blood. So, you know, I had to get my doctorate. <laughs> there, please don't be a doctor. Don't not be a doctor. So I got my doctorate, you know, and I still was like, I still was like, I'm still going to go to medical school. Graduated and still didn't really, you know understand OT, right? Like that. And um, I think we're 17, 18 years in this thing. And I tell you that ha- that shift of understanding has fallen, has 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 continued and remained to f- to be falling in love with what we do. And um, I can scream OT to the to the rooftops because I believe in um, the power and the beauty and the importance of occupation. Right. But that story, I think anybody in that row in that organic chemistry class became OTs. So I got to credit wow. her. Hell of a job. <laughs> but, you know, my 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 uh, gift is to pay that that forward and to continue to um, recruit others to learn about OT. And I guess that's a good segue into what this article needs and is about. Right. Mm-hmm. The process. Yeah. Oh, that's totally like why I wanted to start with this story. Like we're talking about these big numbers today and it can feel so abstract, but your story about how, like it was so personal, how you were called into OT, it was by a single individual. Um, I think I relate to that story too, because I was also like two individuals like told me to be OTs and yeah. I was like, okay. Never like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. What's you know? Yeah. Yeah. So even though we look at these big numbers, like I love like thinking about the personal like solutions um, and stories behind it. The full circle moment is she's still faculty and she was a she served on my admissions committee when I was the director of admissions for the first the committee. And it was like we wow. continue to work together to continue to admit like these incredible individuals into the program. So it's a, it's a full circle at a beautiful moment. But like you said, Sierra, that personal touch, like imagine if they did recruit of me or you, you know, look at how many like people from different backgrounds and intersectionalities that I have been able to touch and bring into the profession. Right. So like that speaks to representation. Hmm, yeah. There's so much to talk about in this article today. Um, and I want to get right into it. 
for some context, I first found this um, article like a year ago when we did our racism in OT podcast. And it was on our list of the 100 most cited OT articles because it's from JAMA, because it's from such a prestigious journal. I spent... And when I first found it, I spent a lot of time trying to compare it to like the AOTA numbers. Um, But this was my favorite snapshot because it compares us to 10 or nine other professions. Like, I think it gives a good big picture overview. So, yeah, that's why that's how I found it. That's why I wanted to bring it forward. What were your impressions as you read it? You can look at it from so many different hats. Like, what did you think of it as you read it? Yeah, great question. Um, this is an honest and safe space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I thought that you know what you know bringing that what you said is is so important, right? And looking at the journal and and you know and what this is what what we're it's not just singling out one profession, but it's bringing all the healthcare. I thought that was incredible. So like, let's look at because I always say this like it can't just be OT working on this, but we all have to be working on this. This uh, in- inclusivity concept, this diversity concept, for the betterment of not just healthcare, but of the communities that we serve. If, if we as OTs, you know, know the o- occupational therapy practitioners, o- I'm including OTs, OTAs, everybody, right? If we are the only ones focused on this, what about PT? What about you know? What about speech? What about we all are serving? Are the like that could be serving the slate, the same client? So we all have to be working. So I love the article was able to dive in and talk about that. It was also interesting how on the article the authors it was only it was only medical right it was like only md yeah yeah yes <laughs> so i'm like ah, hello like it would be great to also have those other uh diverse viewpoints of even professions part of the 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 conversation right and so for me i was like yeah we already know this Right. Like how mm-hmm. many times do we need to repeat and shout at the top of the, the hills, the mountains, like how diversity is lacking. Right. Like I'm so ready to see an article or see like something that has to do with the change. Right. Like we know that numbers are low. Like this is what people like me um, who are in this so, so into this work want to see change. Um, it also reconfirmed with me why OT should be the leaders in this work. Right. Like I'm like, we should be leading all of the healthcare um, professions in really not um, in really uh, showing how we can be uh, holistic in making sure that we can increase these numbers, increase representation, right? Because we see things holistically. So it's not just like, oh, are people being admitted in the schools? It's like, how are we recruiting them? How is the retention? Like, how is that, how is that molding and forming practitioning? You know, how is it? It's not just one area, right? We see things in many different ways. And we can, and someone like me can like connect the dots from, you know, the beginning to the middle to the end to, to so, so that our communities are receiving our patients and our populations are receiving like the best quality healthcare, right? So lastly, I also thought this is why OT should be involved because even the language, I mean, we talk, we talk mm. about being critical, right? Yeah, yeah. The language in like the article like struck me because I was like, this was recently published, but like a lot of the language is not relevant. So uh, anymore. It's irrelevant anymore. So mm-hmm. that's why it's like so important to have multiple people who are experts in this work because using things like cultural competence and language like stakeholders and underrepresented it, like we've moved beyond cultural competence. Like we're almost almost past cultural humility and cultural fluidity. So just to be competent lacks 
the the action. I la- it lacks this lifelong learning. You know, like competent, you could just it's a checklist. I'm I'm competent. I I've taken this test and I'm competent. But like this cultural humility piece, this fluidity piece, this is this song and dance of like um, this lifelong journey of wanting to connect, right? Not this top-down model. So um, being using that language also made it a limiting kind of, it limited the article of showing like, again, why we should be doing things and looking at things holistically. And instead of saying underrepresented, we're minoritized. We're not, we're, we're, why are we underrepresented, Right. And then mm-hmm. stakeholders, what about community partners? Like, you know, not just, we're not, we're, it's a community. When you want to build this work, it's engagement, it's community building versus these are our stakeholders, right? So even language can shape and mold the way we read things, under, interpret things, and the way we could execute or the next steps of what we have to do to create the changes. So a little bit of critique and, but interesting concepts too. Yeah, yeah. I'm always amazed how, quickly dated our language becomes. And I guess related that, that just speaks to how important it is to have multiple perspectives, even when you're writing this paper. And you can feel that, um, Mm -hmm. that this paper came from a limited perspective. And yeah, and only the, only like the, the physicians, right? It's like talking about all these beautiful, you know, allied sciences and all these the, the the gamut of healthcare professions, but it's limiting limiting perspective. And so there's opportunity to have maybe a part two with multiple voices, right? And so mm-hmm. yeah. 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 This paper or the people that are continuing to do this work that this paper was part of, it's from it's called the Mullen Institute. I just looked it up before this. Um and I'm like, oh, I would love to find some kind of OT collaboration with this institute. Yep. Like they're doing the work. Exactly. We want to see the numbers and we're so good at um, like you said, thinking holistically and yep. I would add like breaking things down, taking steps. How do we move forward? Like, yeah, because we see the connection between edu- well, education, practice and communities. Right. And so it's in education is in how we're having culturally responsive practice and it's how our communities are impacted by that. Right. But it starts with holistic education. We see things. We see things like that. And the article like it called out, especially our educational institutions and our national associations. One, is there a role for transparency around these numbers at each individual institution? Um, what would that look like? And two, tell me more about the holistic admissions process. Like that's something that I hear a lot about, but I want to hear your primer on. Like what what does yeah. that mean for us? Yeah. First of all, is there a space for transparency? Uh, I Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely we like the the thing you asked about transparency transparency around diversity statistics right in the academic mm-hmm. institutions. yeah uh yes the the way we can do this is make it visible and easily accessible like i remember part of institutions like they weren't publishing it and i would question and ask why aren't we publishing this what do we have to hide you know um, and we have to be clear about what the statistic is representing. Like we can't conflate the the statistics, right? We have to be very clear what the like we can't like make it to make it look like we're doing things we're not. And and we have to be open to feedback and even criticism to do better. Like being held accountable is really okay if we are truly committed to this work. So you cannot hide the data. 
And you have to be able to, like you said, publish the data annually so we could track the changes, right? And you have to be able to interpret the data correctly. And you have to be able to um, share the data consistently, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and if your data is low, then you have to work towards making it what it should be. You know, that's the, if we if we look purely at just this mind of data, the data, we should be driven by the data, right? And so when we aren't and when we hide it and we're not transparent, then we have to start questioning why. Do we really want to see the change? Or is this us using the DEI just performative? Is it lip service? Is it just very, is it very surface? Or when you make changes like this, like you got to be, it, it, it starts tapping into systemic changes. Yeah. And are we ready to have systemic changes? Because when you start having more diversity in these programs, the programs have to be ready. The programs have to be ready to have conversations. The programs that they haven't had to have before, if they're just having had predominantly white students, you know, with predominantly white professors, with predominantly white curriculum, you know, like we have to be ready to have these. It's a, it's an uncomfortability. It's uncomfortable, but we have to be ready and so when we're not, when we, when we say we want to have diversity, but we're not ready to make any shifts along the way, then again, we're not, we're doing a, a disservice to our students and we're doing a disservice to our profession. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ties me into holistic admissions, yeah. which is about ensuring, you know, holistic admissions, I, I think, could be defined many ways by many people and they can, they can, they can put holistic missions in something and I'm like, yeah, nah, that's not really holistic. You know, like it's just everybody's criteria is different, but it really, the deal is that ensures that no single factor leads to either accepting the student or excluding the student from admission, right? So like one of its key values is the opportunity to recognize an applicant's strength in one area. It might offset a weakness, right, Sarah? Like it might offset Mm -hmm. a weakness in another. So if we keep by carefully weighing our strengths, our achievements, and the ways in which an applicant might contribute to the educational environment of an OT or OTA program, evaluators, like previously when I was the director of admissions, like we um, increase the likelihood that we can offer admission to those most likely to succeed, right? So if we start looking at the different criteria and how they are weighed, as well as removing certain criteria like GRE and looking at how to eliminate bias as much as possible, it's extremely important in addressing systemic and institutional barriers in, in higher education. So, you know, for me, it's important to look at the non-cognitive factors, right? Like I never said, like, I never went to a client's room and a client was like, what was your GRE? What was your, what was your, <laughs> what was your MBCOT score? Like, I need to know. I mean, or what was your, um, uh, was GRE, GPA score? You know what I mean? Like, am I empathetic? Am I compatible? Can, can I build rapport? Can I get down to the level of the client? Like we need to also understand those non-cognitive factors. And if we start weighing things a little bit more equitably, then we should be able to ensure that we have the best people to enter this profession based on our values. Mm-hmm. We need to admit based on our values. Yeah, that all speaks so much to me for multiple reasons. Or one, I went to a university that didn't require the GRE because I decided late. I like I like dove fully in that I wanted you. to be an OT, but I decided like, late and I now. didn't have time to Yeah. Look it's at you now. <laughs> and I'm just coming off of uh episode on dyslexia too. And for people who like the actual test taking is not their strengths. I know 
multiple OTs who I consider some of the best OTs who struggled with taking tests. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense in so many, like, so many realms for sure. When you really dive into it and you look at these rubrics, you're like, whoa, 75% is weighed on GRE and GPA? And then the rest is like letters are wrecked. Like, how, what are we looking at? You know, what do we care about? You know, um, and what's creating bias, you know? And when you, when you remove that and you do it in a way that looks at somebody's attributes, their experiences, all the, mm-hmm. the story, you know, uh, then you really can get into this beautiful diversity intersectionality of increasing it in our, in our profession. That's starting with uh, our um, academic uh, ex- educational institutions. But before we can get to admissions, we got to get into recruitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's all like admissions is just one part of this train. Part of it. Yeah. You know, recruitment. Mm-hmm. And retention and yeah, oh, so that's, many things. That's that part of the, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. And not just how we keep them, but their experiences throughout the process of keeping them, you know, and how they how they how they grow and how they leave these spaces and become like incredible practitioners. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's our duty to ensure that they have these experiences that are safe and sound and they feel seen and heard and valued. Right. Mm-hmm. If we believe in diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's yeah, such a beautiful vision. Oh, um, like we need three hours to talk about this. Yeah, video. yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, that's like, another podcast. Yeah, we'll have to have another podcast episode on yeah, that. I mean, that could be the topic when you come back. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing: I have this term. I don't just call it holistic admissions. I say holistic education. Like, I have this whole theory of what holistic education looks like. And when you when you use like a deja, that's the new word that everyone's using, right? Uh, AOTA is using particularly. When you use that framework to build out these what holistic education looks like, then everything that's all threaded throughout every factor of the decisions that you make in holistic education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The article really called out um, our national associations, too, yeah. as um, a, a place that should be hopefully transparent about these numbers, publishing them regularly. Mm-hmm. What does that look like for our national association? I don't know. What what can we do better there? Well, you asked the right person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Currently as your VP and hopefully your next president. Uh, I believe that we need to show membership diversity. You know, we need to show the academic statistics. Again, when we talk, it's tied in. Like, it's all tied. Like, national association. We have the ALS, the academic leadership, you know, council. And, um, you know, that's where we have the Ed Summit. You know, that's where educators come together and really talk about all the things that have to do with OTOTA education. These are the spaces that are our leaders, right? These are the spaces who are our forward thinkers. These are the spaces, these are the spaces of the people who are running our educational programs. So it's tied together. So it's in how our national association can drive the conversation, lead the conversation, shape priorities that are in to, and give them to our institutions as guidelines of this is the direction that we should go. So, I mean, yeah, we're not micromanaging, but at least guidelines so that this this school over here in New York and this school over here in L.A. and this school over here in Ohio, like we have the same concept of the direction that we want to go in. Or here's the thing, Sarah, 
we're going to continue having declining numbers, not just diverse numbers, but declining numbers, mm-hmm. period. Period. Yep. Period. Until we get on board as a national association, say, let's have this campaign. Let's make OT visible. So we could, you know, because if we're not having people even apply, we're not going to survive as a profession, mm-hmm. let alone an association. So we need to really get smart, get active, get focused on creating messaging, campaigning, um, guidelines, tools, resources that give our educational programs direction on the priorities that we should be focusing on. One is increasing the 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 people applying our application, like increasing uh, people applying to the profession or getting into the profession boils down to recruitment. It boils down to people seeing themselves as OT. It boils down to if we graduate and we have all this debt, are we having, are we able to live life comfortably? Like it's all connected, you know, like, yeah. So if we want to be able to live life connect um, comfortably and we want to get reimbursed for what we do, then we need more members in the associations that we can represent at the Hill. So our advocacy and regulatory affair, you know, so we have to have more diverse members. But if you don't have, if our membership is dropping in our national association, then we have to ask why. It's because of lack of transparency that our national association keeps on doing, right? So like it all is connected. So if people feel disconnected and they don't want to have anything to do with AOT and, you know, then our, then people don't want to have anything to do with blowing about OT, like it's a sinking ship, right? It's all connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we need to really not be performative. We need to not have lip service. We need to get very focused and prioritize how we are focusing on this thing. There's opportunities. We just started a new department led by Dr. Varlisha Gibbs-Lyons and Angela Warren, which is going to be wonderful um, that AOT is having. And hopefully we can focus on these things. Yeah. And Neil. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just know from just from operating my small business, like when I. Small business. You're (laughs) business. (laughs) <laughs> my, business, you, oh, my business, my business. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. My that, business, my business. <laughs> when you, you, I remember you started when you had a blog. Your business is grow. You own you, that. Yes, yes. And you have been a part of it for a long time. But when you track numbers, it just like biases your action towards those numbers. Like, I oh, what's the business phrase for that? For that. It's like, if you track it, you act on it. Like, yeah. And so if our national, I can just see if our national association could help our profession track these numbers, publish them each year, then we could really understand like what's working, what's not working. And it's going to bias us towards working on it. Like, yeah, there's a workforce survey that comes out, but, uh, and we can look at that, but you can look at it so much. You need people to take action in the change. Yeah. Like, oh Yeah. Yeah. It's just like articles like, oh, yeah, we know this. But like, OK, so now what are we going to do about it? Yeah. How are we going to use these numbers to drive the priorities and drive yeah. the change, you know? Yeah. And we should really have it deep down in our strategic plan so that it's it forces us to stay accountable to make these changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how are you how are you showing these numbers to like that's that's why I did like about this article. Like, I love seeing it compared. Yeah. That's why I want to see. I want to see every year. Here's where these ten professions are at, and here's where OT is. Like, yeah, I just want to. See, and the Mullen Institute is doing it already. Is there a partnership we need there? To partner like, with oh yeah. yeah, you got it. You yeah, took it, uh, yeah. <laughs> we need to get in. There. And they need us too. Yeah, 
Maybe let's name this club, Boulder Institute, to call, call, let's do this. You call know? us, let's do it. Let's do this. Bring OT in the conversation. Let's mobilize. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that makes me really excited. Um, something I've been thinking about for a while, and I wanted to ask you specifically and ask in context of this paper is from, I guess from like our associations, I, I see this stance a lot of like protect OT, protect OT. But what's different to me about your voice is like you're a promoter, like you're like forward looking for us, whereas protecting feels like we're always on the defensive. We're like looking to the like back. What can we do to like promote us, like promote our profession to new members, to the public. I feel like you have a natural, like a natural tact, like gift <laughs> for that. Like, yeah. how can we do that better overall? Yeah, we have these conversations, right? Oftentimes it's like this idea of like offense versus defense, you know? <laughs> and, and I, I, I mean, I talked about this last night during the conversations with the candidates about this vision um, of like not just promoting, but like being a champion for OT. Right. Yeah. And and, you know, there's so many opportunities, but I feel like we constantly lead from behind. Right. And if we're talking about that, we're dynamic in the healthcare or just the, the world is constantly changing. Like we got to continue to like be ahead. Like we can't keep on playing from behind. And so, you know, what does that look like? Because if we keep playing from the top behind, how are we going to be a sustainable profession? How are we going to be a sustainable association, right? And so, like, highlighting entrepreneur, like, like this shouldn't be like a taboo, like, oh, there's these OT entrepreneurs. Like, there's these Sarah Lyons of the yeah. world. Like, <laughs> lean into it. Like, bring you into the conversation because that's what diverse voices look like, right? There's these incredible grassroots organizers like myself. Bring us into the conversation, right? There are these wonderful, like, there's our mental health practitioners. There are, like, maternal like maternal mental health. There is pelvic floor health. There are these people who are doing these underground work. Like, why is it underground? Like, this, where are priorities and positioning in pelvic floor, like, health? Like, why is it underground? Like, shout out to Carlin and the whole crew, you know what I mean? The supportive mm-hmm. mom and the whole crew. Like, this work should be, we should be shouting to the rooftops of like um, all the things that we do and all of our potential. Oh, give me all of our yeah. potential. <laughs> give me all of our potential. But we continue to like miss the mark, you know? Um, and, and why are we missing the mark? So I feel like there's opportunity um, with the create with this new vision that we could be creating, revamping and reboosting our mission because like, do we identify with our mission? Um, redoing our strategic plan or you have a new president, a new vice president, a new executive director, like director coming, like this time can shift for us to actually be on the offense, you know, yeah. instead of constantly leading from behind. Like, do we know, you know, like, like how to, um, like, here's the thing. Do, are we well versed in just even Medicare, like, reg- like regulations? Like, how do we know how to advocate for, like, do we know our do's and don'ts of like governance? You know, these little simple things that we need to be able to, a leader should be able to educate, should be able to champion, should be able to get everybody in like 
aligned so that we could have a unified voice to make sure that OT is a household name, <laughs> is visible, is viable, is sustainable, but it starts with shifting the culture within our association, right? It starts with getting everyone on board and getting leadership on board to say, hey, we need to be forward thinking. We need to have foresight and this is how we do it. So it gives us a time to be visionary. Yeah. I really, really can dive in, but I know that I know that. We yeah, are, yeah. I know that we're on a tie. I have a lot to talk about. Yes, yes. Defensive versus costly defensive. But we have so many incredible individuals like yourself that we could tap into and actually build community with. We're not like, we can't, we shouldn't be all knowing. But when we tap in and we lean in, that's how we become stronger together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to come to AOTA and see all the data year over year, like we just talked about. But I also want to come and see individual stories. Like, I'm just thinking of the website or like, like not stock photos, like lifting up our individual uh, hello. people. Hello. Like, like, yeah, <laughs> that's what I want to see. <laughs> like consumer value, membership value. Like I want to see like in the front, like OT and I, like occupation-based work. And that like, this is occupation-based. You know, what the pelvic floor crew folks are doing is occupation. Like, we need to just, like, show and show them. Show us in action. Get us inspired. Mm -hmm. Like, legit, we need to be inspired. Yep. We need to be reminded why we fell in love with this profession. Yeah. Like, connect us back to humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we can be forward-thinking in that way. Connect us. (laughs) Yeah. It's connection. You know, that creates the doing. That's what we do. We are the doing. We are the becoming. Thinking about this topic, we've talked about like data sets. We've talked about educational institutions and the national associations. But I want to end with the individual. Like for someone who's listening to this podcast right now, what what can they do? Um, how can an individual help us move towards this reality where our workforce reflects the people that we're serving. Like that's where we're we're going. We want the multiple perspectives in our workforce so we can be serving the population well. Yeah. What can can you do on on an individual basis? What could I go do tomorrow? That's a great question. You know, you don't have to run for AOTA president to make these changes, right? You can do all these spaces in a macro level and a meso level, right? You can do these... You can make the the changes that you want to see at any level, any spaces that you occupy. What I ask for people to be is a co-conspirator, not an ally, uh, maybe an accomplice, but a co-conspirator is like, how are we making sure that these concepts are threaded in all the spaces, in all the things? Um, you know, I can talk about me. Like the Centennial Vision was out. It was 2013, Sarah. And there's a space in the Centennial Vision that talks about being a diverse workforce and being globally connected. And 2017 was coming. And there's a few of us, Catherine herself, and, you know, the founders, Nadine, like I, uh, uh, and we sat there and we said, how are we getting there? And Kotev was born. You know, we asked the question, we saw the gap, and we made a change to now there's actually an organization that is addressing the lack of diversity um, in our workforce, right? And how are we making sure that we are all diverse, culturally responsive, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, uh, 
you know, in this profession, right? We saw a gap. And so I asked people, if you see a gap, do something about it. We had no money. We had a stall volunteer. We all lived in different places in the country. We didn't make, we didn't have Zoom in 2013. We just, we just had desire and passion to see change. 10 years later, that organization is still standing as the premier organization doing this work. There's a gap. You know how many more safe spaces, how many more diverse leaders, how many more students that we've brought into the profession? We've created pathways for leadership development. We've created 130 COTAD chapters. So it could just come from an, I, I, I'm just summarizing these. I haven't even yeah. listed anything, okay? <laughs> Sarah, I could go on and on, but I'm just saying it comes from an idea. I want people to birth their ideas. And so I don't want people complaining about it and talking about it and 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 um, reading about it only. I want people to do about it, do something about it. OT, we are the doing. If you see an injustice happening, do something about it. Say something about it. You know, if you want things to just be like, yeah, we're going to have this DEI committee, we're going to have this DEI task force, we're just going to say it. So that it could be just like, you know, like one-dimensional. But to tap in to really make those systemic and institutional changes, we're going to be uncomfortable, but you got to be a co-conspirator. Hmm. You got to be a co-conspirator. You have to lock arms. And so individually, I want whatever spaces that you occupy, the call to action is look at the gap. You know, look at the initiatives or lack thereof that are happening in these spaces and, and speak up and do something about it. Mm-hmm. When you see lack of transparency and it doesn't make sense, Ask the question, you know, and then you then the then Sarah part two is like, how do you organize and how do you mobilize? Because a real leader is going to organize and mobilize, get into some good trouble to make, <laughs> you know, but for the benefit of the future of our profession and our communities. See, ultimately, we want healthy communities. And if we're not conspirators to promoting diversity and inclusion, belonging, justice, accessibility, all the things under this work, then what are we doing? I mean, you could just look at me as somebody just talking about diversity all the time. I'm well-versed in so many other areas of our how our profession should be and where we should go. But if we don't tap into this and know how to tap into it, then we're completely doing a disservice to who we serve and to the people who could come into this profession. Co-conspire. Yeah, and just have such a gift for putting things in words. And I think like finding the gap is something that we can all do in wherever we're at. Um, Cause we all see the different gaps in our different work areas, in our different communities. And that's why yeah. we need a lot of people. We need a lot of co-conspirators because there's yeah, so many gaps. Like, and you're just responsible for your gap that you're yeah, seeing. Just like if gap. we all just did that, like. We're pixels in the big picture. Yeah. Remember when Dr. Clark Florent, when she was president, her whole thing was like HD, OT and HD, like we're pixels in the picture, you know? And, and it's like, what is your, what is your, what is your legacy in this picture? Like, what are you contributing? Mm-hmm. What can you say that you've done? And it doesn't have to be grand, but something to co-conspire. Because mm-hmm. we have a problem. Not just OT, obviously, the article shows all of us. All of us, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate you 
like coming on and processing these numbers with us, like translating them into a call to action uh, feels like just one tiny snippet of a larger conversation. And I love how you were on before talking about our AOTA vision. And now you're here talking about the concrete numbers of it. And I can't wait for another conversation. But to wrap this up today, like we've touched on so many different things. Like what's what's the thought you want to leave us with um, and the call to action for us? Yeah, the thought, uh, the call to action, Sarah, right? That when we talk about this kind of justice, diversity, inclusion, equity, all, you know, accessibility, belonging, all the things. But, you know, I talk about this all the time. The days of being performative and providing lip, lip, lip service have to be long gone, right? If we desire to prioritize this, then our practices and actions, we must mimic that, right? So I talk about legacy a lot, but I also want people to know that your intention does not equal your impact. You may have all the intention in the world, but have you made impact? And so we have to look at all areas of like when we co-conspire, what is the impact that we're making? And is it from the heart, right? So I say, don't be silent. Don't be silent and lead with your heart and your mind so that people, so that we can not only increase health equity, but that our communities can be um, better off. We can serve our communities better and we can be responsive to the needs of our community, right? So intention does not equal impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got to do better. And we can together. There's so much opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that is just like humbling and powerful to be like, we do have the opportunity to make that positive impact on our community. And our communities need us. There are big problems that OT has um, solutions to. We have. We are the ones. Like we have to tap in. So we are we should be the ones making all these changes and we should be leading the rest of the healthcare providers and how to make them. Yeah. Yeah. That's visibility, baby. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, for this time today, for your continued leadership. You're um, welcome. It's an yeah. honor. All the, yeah. You always bring so much heart and I lo- always love your articulation. Oh, thank you. I'm with you here. It's a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I got to go do right now is go breastfeed. So for all the mamas listening, those are the occupations <laughs> that are occupying my time. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Well, go do that important work. And thank, thank you so much for just being here. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the continued um, relationship building community building and thank you for making sure that there is space on your platform to talk about these important issues so appreciate you and i want to wish you nothing but continued success sarah keep thriving thank you you're welcome (laughs) it is always such a joy to speak with arame and this conversation just made me really hopeful for changes ahead I looked up that business quote I was trying to remember and the different variations of it are that you get what you measure or you can't improve what you don't measure. And based on this conversation, I really hope to see annual tracking and sharing of diversity metrics, perhaps in partnership with the Mullen Institute, which was featured in this paper today. And like she said, wherever you see gaps between what is and what should be, I just really hope that you were inspired by her words to take action. 
As always, I really want to hear what your thoughts are after this episode. If you are a casual listener of the podcast, please let us know your thoughts by giving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to, or you can comment on our YouTube video. But the best place to really discuss the implications of this research is in the OT Potential Club. We'll have all of the mentioned resources in there. I'll have that review of the research for you, and I'll be watching for your comments in our forum related to this episode. And if you are interested in earning a CEU certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. Once you're in there, you can find this episode and take a five question test. And when you pass, we will generate a certificate for your time today. Okay, I just want to thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. I hope this podcast helps keep you informed and inspired as an OT professional. Take care and we'll talk next time.